If you're not there already, go ahead and turn with me to John chapter 6. Last week, we left off with Jesus really at the beginning of a discourse. Um, He's talking back and forth. It's a large crowd in the city of Capernaum. This is the same large crowd, or at least it's composed of the same people that he had just fed miraculously. We know that as the feeding of the 5,000, but as we've looked at time and time again, it was more than 5,000. That was just 5,000 men. It was probably more like 15,000 total people. So that was definitely a miracle. And based off of that miracle, Jesus is now in a discourse with this same group of people. And we are in John 6 in what has been come, become known as the bread of life discourse. And it's become known as that because of verse 35, which we're going to get into today, where Jesus says, I am the bread of life. And so when we talked about this last week. It's a discourse because there's a, a little bit of a back and forth with the crowd. You can kind of see that they're going to make statements, ask questions, and then Jesus is going to come in and answer questions or clarify what he means. And if we could summarize, I guess, the discourse completely, Jesus is attempting to clarify his identity for the crowd. That's what he's trying to do here. He's trying to convince them of who he is, what he came to do. And he's trying to use this discourse to do this because if they will understand who he is and what he came to do, then they will trust him for eternal life. That's the goal. That was John's goal, right? For writing his book. It's Jesus's goal in this conversation. And one of the things they should trust him for is he's the Messiah. He's the one who provides eternal life. He's the one they've been looking for. Now he's just fed them physical food It's Passover time, and so Jesus, as a master teacher, uses bread as a metaphor. And we're going to see how he does this throughout this section. Now, one of the things that we're going to see that's unique in this passage today, and it's kind of reflected in the title of the message this morning, is you have to come to the bread of life by faith in order to arrive with the bread of life in the end. Okay? So this is why I've got it titled, Coming to and Arriving With the bread of life. The bread of life obviously is a metaphor for Jesus Christ, as we'll see in the passage. And so let's kind of get started there in verse 32. One of the things that Jesus says here um, is he says, most assuredly, verse 32, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. Now, um, just to get context, let's go back to verse 30 and 31, because Remember what what Jesus' audience had just told him. He said, therefore, they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? Now, my answer to that question, if I was Jesus, is like, you mean besides the feeding of the 15,000? You mean besides the full day I spent with you before I fed the 15,000, healing people of all kinds of sickness? You mean besides those signs? You you want another one, right? And, And then they say, What sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Remember, Jesus had just said, don't labor for the food that perishes. Labor for the food which endures to eternal life. And they kind of come back to him and said, well, how are you going to labor? Okay, you're telling us to labor. What are you going to do? It's kind of a little bit snarky in their response. And then they say this, our fathers ate the manna in the desert. This is talking about Israel, Moses leading them through the desert for 40 years. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. The implication is Moses fed us for 40 years. What are you going to do? Moses fed us for 30 years. Are you going to feed us for the rest of our life? That's kind of the implication that's coming through in their thinking. And what Jesus is going to tell them, look, I'm going to, I'm going to tell you the truth. In fact, he uses this phrase, amen, amen. Most, it's translated most assuredly. He uses it often in this passage because he's trying to convince them that what he's about to say is super duper trustworthy. It's not like what he's saying before wasn't trustworthy, but he's really drawing attention to what he's saying here. And what he's saying here uh, is simply this. Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. They understood that, but they had a superficial understanding because they, they technically knew that the bread came from God. But by this time, they were referring to it as the, the bread that came from Moses. Moses gave us this bread. And, and some even believed, uh, if you, if you go back and look at the history, uh, during this time, some even believed that it was Moses's merits that got them the bread in the first place. And then when Moses died, the manna ended. They, they didn't see the timing as to going into the promised land. They saw it at Moses's death. So they really attributed this manna to, to the, to the man Moses, to the life of Moses, to the merits of Moses. 
Jesus is picking up on this, this subtlety coming through this conversation. And he's just, he's just calling it out. He's just calling out, guys, by the way, Moses didn't provide this bread. And the reason he's going to tell them that is he's going to remind them where the source of the bread came from. And what he's going to do is he's going to transition. He's going to say, he provided God, the triune God, Yahweh, provided bread for the Israelites in the wilderness. Guess what else, what other type of bread he's providing? The bread for eternal life. He's the same source that provided manna is the same source that provides bread for eternal life. This is where he's going to be going. And, and it's so funny is, is Moses wasn't the one sustaining them in the wilderness, but they were trying to give him the credit for it. They, they were kind of mixing that up a little bit. And so the allusion to or comparison between Jesus and Moses was faulty because Jesus, the, the Godhead, the triune Godhead, Yahweh, was the source of the manna attributed to Moses. And, and that's the point. Jesus, and this is what Jesus is saying. I was the source of even that bread. <laughs> you guys are trying to compare me to Moses, but that's like trying to compare a superstar to somebody on the JV team. And, and his crowd had it backwards. They thought Moses was the superstar and Jesus was the JV player. They had it totally confused here. This is what Jesus is explaining. They don't even know who he is. And we're going to see this in the next phrase. He says, my father gives you. My father is the source, not only of manna, but also of the bread that comes from heaven, which is the true bread. And then verse 27, Jesus ties himself into there. If you remember last week, he says, the son of man will give you the bread to endure. So you can see it's this, this gift of eternal life through the bread from heaven. The bread of life is coming from the source of the triune Godhead, the same source that manna came from. And this is what Jesus is telling his audience. In fact, he says, right now, my father gives you the true bread from heaven. And this is right now with urgency. This is the word give. I think it's used. I think I say it later. It's like 12 times in this passage. It's this idea that he gives something of his own accord and with his own goodwill. And what's given? Well, the true bread. Out of, ek, it's a Greek preposition, out of heaven. Manna came out of heaven as well. But now what the father is giving is, is what he calls the true bread. Okay, they, they thought manna was the true bread. Remember what manna meant, by the way? It's interesting. When you look at a literal translation of manna, it's like, what is it? If it has anyone ever had a whatchamacallit bar? Really? Nobody, nobody? Raise your hand. I want to see who's had a whatchamacallit bar. Okay. They're good, aren't they? Yeah, I mean... It's good. I'm not saying that's what manna was, but it's kind of got the same name. You know, it's like the whatchamacallit bar. Well, what's really cool is manna was, was whatchamacallit, and Jesus is going to be the true bread from heaven. He, we're going to see that the, the bread from heaven, the true bread, is actually a person. That's what we're going to see um, in this passage. See, they were, they were thinking it was a thing. And they're saying, oh, well, God is going to give us this thing right now. And that's why their response in verse 34 is like, give us this bread always. And you can just see them with their mouth open. Yeah, we want to shovel this food in, right? Because they think they're getting a thing. Not getting a thing, it's a person. Jesus is speaking metaphorically about himself. He's going to bring this out clearly. And one of the things that Jesus does is, is you'll, you'll see this. You saw this with the woman at the well. You saw this with Nicodemus. He is patient with people when he's teaching them truth. He starts one way. They don't get it. He adjusts. He tries to bring them along. They don't get it. He adjusts again. He brings them along. They don't get it. And finally just says, you know what? I'm the bread of life. I am the bread of life. You know, they're not, they're not getting it. And we're going to see that as he goes. But he's very patient with people as he teaches. And so he's going to use this metaphor of him being the bread to teach how somebody obtains eternal life, what they should actually be focused on, not just stuff in their gut. Right, Something more important than that that lasts for eternity. In fact, he's going to mention, I think in this passage, seven times that he had come down out of heaven. Come down out of heaven. That was his origin. That was his identity. And so this, again, feeds into what he's trying to communicate here. And so as we see in verse 33, the bread of God is a person. This isn't a thing. And, And he's trying to bump them off of their thinking to think that Jesus wants to just keep providing them Physical bread and physical fish. He's trying to bump them off of that thinking. He says, for the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Notice that word for. It further expands or explains his comment on what the true bread from heaven is. Now, why did he need to do that? Well, 
uh, partly because at this time, Jewish people, when they would talk, when they would hear this phrase, true bread from heaven, guess what they would associate that with? The Mosaic law. The, they would think that they, that they were talking about the, the word of God came from, did the word of God come from heaven? Well, God gave it to Moses on tablets. And so they, they saw the true bread from heaven is the law, is the Mosaic law. So Jesus is clarifying it, it, the, the bread of God, the true bread is not a thing. It's not physical bread. It's not the law. It's a person. And it's the person that God has sent. And he'll get into more detail here about that. And so it, it's his dearly beloved son. Remember, uh, too, as he's talking about God here, he's talking about God the Father. And, and we saw in verse 27 that the Father has set his seal on him. Look at, look at verse 27, the very last phrase. Again, because the Father has set his seal on him, that shows approval. And then we see um, in verse 29 that God the Father has sent him from heaven. It shows authorization. And in other words, God the Father is completely satisfied with Jesus Christ. He's completely comfortable with Jesus Christ being his authoritative representative. And these two facts prove that to us. They prove that God is satisfied with Jesus Christ, that you could say that he's impressed with Jesus Christ. And why wouldn't he be? Jesus Christ is the solution to our sin problem. Jesus Christ is the solution to all of mankind's sin problem. God knew that all the way back in Genesis 3.15. In fact, really, God knew that from the foundation, before the foundation of the world. God knew that. He, he didn't have a plan B because he didn't need a plan B. Have you ever done something, made a plan, and you knew your plan was going to work? You didn't even take time to make a plan B? Many of us don't do that. We're like contingency central. If this happens, then I'm going to do this. And this happens, then I'm going to do. And we've got all these contingencies. God doesn't need contingency plans. He just drops out plan A because plan A works. And plan A in this situation is Jesus Christ. And we can see this even communicated in the way that Jesus communicates how his father proves him. His father sent him. His father sent his, set his seal on him. And this is what he wanted his audience to see. If God the Father is satisfied with me, you can be satisfied with me. This is what he wants his audience to see. Now, we're going to see they don't see it. We're going to get some indications that they're not uh, getting it. But if God the Father is pleased with Jesus Christ, they can be pleased with him too. And if you're sitting here this morning and you've never put your faith in Jesus Christ alone, that this is the argument. The creator of the universe is satisfied with what Jesus did for you. You can be satisfied with it. God will accept you on the merits of Jesus Christ. All you have to do to gain the benefit of that is trust in what he did for you. To actually basically cheer on and be excited about what God accomplished for you in the person of Jesus Christ. And rely upon that to get you to heaven. That's it. It's a simple and gracious message. And so God's doing something now that's similar to what he's done in the past with the manna. Only now, in this day, as Jesus is talking, he's doing something much, much greater. You know, one of the things that you see is manna just sustained life. It just kept them alive. True bread, or the bread of God, actually gives life. See the difference? One is in a, a life-originating type of bread. The other one just sustains, sustains life. And so one of the things that we see, and this is, um, John even brings this out in his epistle, is when you look at Jesus Christ, we've got to understand that he's life originating. He's the source of life. Do you know, you know, if, if we look at it technically, do you know why Jesus can promise you eternal life? Sometimes we, we even view eternal life as like separate from Jesus. Like, well, there's Jesus over here and then there's eternal life over here. And it's kind of, you know, it's kind of two different things and it's kind of remotely connected. But do you know why that Jesus can promise you eternal life? Because he is eternal life himself. And you are united to him. That's why he can promise it. That's what it's all about. And John says it so well in his epistle, 1 John 5, 11 through 13. I've kind of highlighted this. Notice the connection, by the way, to John 6. And this is a testimony that God has given us eternal life. Who is the origin? Who is the giver of eternal life? It's God himself. He's the one who gives it. You don't earn it. It's a free gift because Jesus paid for it in full. And notice where this life is. It doesn't say this life is, is with his son. It doesn't say his life is, is deposited to you by his son. The life is where? It's in his son. When you trusted in Christ, where did God place you? He placed you in his son. And then he placed his son in you. 
It's this reciprocal union. And because Jesus lives, you will live also. The day that Jesus stops living is the day that you stop living if you've trusted in him. This is why eternal life is guaranteed as a gift because he is life. He is eternal life. Let's keep reading because the text says it better than I ever could. So this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. Not he who goes to church has life. He who burns candles has life. He who gives money to the church has life. He who walks an aisle has life. He who says the sinner's prayer has life. If you have the son, you have life because he is life. How do you get the son? Well, let's keep reading. He who has the son has life. Not will have life. Future tense has life right now. Present tense. I said, I want in on that, right? (laughs) Right now. He who does not have the son of God does not have life right now with the implication they won't have life in the future if something doesn't change. What needs to change? It's right here. These things I've written to you who do what? Believe in the name of the son of God. Why him? Why the son of God? Because he's the one that died for you and rose again. That's why him. Believe in the name of the Son of God that you may hope that you have eternal life, (laughs) that you may wish for that you have eternal life, or that you will know. You'll know that you have eternal life. And you can know that you have eternal life, not because you know what you're going to do or not do 20 years from now, because you know what Jesus accomplished 2,000 years ago. That's how you can know. It's the only way you can know. So anyone that says, well, you got to wait to the end of your life and see if your good works, you know, if you persevere to the end, how in the world could you know that? You set yourself up to be the biggest hypocrite since the apostle Peter said, I'll never deny you. Little teenage girl, didn't you walk with him? No, I didn't even know the man. Well, what are you, why are you pointing me out? You know, I mean, the only way you can know you have eternal life is if you have the son. The son is eternal life. This is what's being brought out in John 6. And so the father gives life to the world. And and notice he says the world there, it's very significant because he's talking to a Jewish audience, right? Again, Jews had no problem. Oh yeah, God loves us. God loves Israel. He don't love those Gentiles, those dogs, those Samaritans, those half mongrels. You know, that's kind of their idea. But he says he gives life to the world. He, He, not just the Jewish nation. He's giving life, this opportunity for life to the world. And unfortunately, as we read in John 1, many of the nation of Israel rejected him. And we see many in the world over the centuries have rejected Jesus Christ. Can you imagine? There is one example. I think there's one instance in American history where a president pardoned a man on death row. He signed the papers, sent it to the prison. All the man on death row had to do was sign it. And you know, he refused to sign it. Pardon offered pardoned, typed up, paid for in his hand. All he had to do was receive it. He rejected it and he faced death. And do you know that thousands and and thousands upon hundreds of thousands upon millions and billions of people over the course of the last 2000 years have rejected this offer of pardon. And we just want to get this message out to as many people as possible because it's a free gift. It's a free pardon that is being offered to the chiefest of sinners that exist in the world. And people will simply look you in the eye and just laugh about what Jesus did for them and just reject this message. It's just tragic. And that's why we need your prayers as we come up to this time uh, where we have these evangelistic outreaches, especially this September. And as we're going to see, Jesus's audience is is missing the point. This, This should have been... A, a moving message, you know, and even if the whole crowd was going, you know, not getting it, there should have been one or two like, can y'all be quiet? I got a que- I got a real question here, but notice what they go on to say in verse 34. They said, Lord, give it to me now. Give me this bread. I'll take it. I'm hungry. I haven't eaten since last night when you fed me. Uh, give me, give me this bread. I want it now. Lord, give us this bread always. Now, what's really interesting here is they use the word Lord. It's interesting because at first glance, you're like, oh, maybe they are getting it. They're calling him Lord, 
right? So this is, so it's interesting. It's, it's the Greek word kurios. And, and it's just a great example. This is a great teaching moment for all of us in our Bible study. It's just a great example that, that Greek words have a wide semantic range of meaning, just like English do. English does, you know, like the word trunk, uh, like the word apple. Okay, you, you can't just determine the meaning by the word. You have to look at the context with which it's used, right? And so this is one of those words, kurios. They're, they're clearly not, they clearly don't believe that Jesus is the Lord God. That's not what they're saying. They are addressing him with a title of respect, though. So I guess give them credit for that. This is a respectful address. The word kurios means master, owner, or someone with authority over something. In, in this case, in this context, what did they believe Jesus had authority over? The bread. He's the man with the spatula. You know, he's the guy that's scooping it on your plate. All right. So they're going to treat him with respect, just like I treated the lunch ladies when I was growing up with respect. Now, I think I've told that story. I would always go to one lunch lady because she always gave me bigger scoops. You know, it's like I'm a hungry boy, right? And I, and I always treated her with great respect. Not because I thought she was the Lord God, but because she had a bigger spatula, you know, a bigger spoon for me to give me this. Just to give you an example of a wide, this wide range of meaning to show that I'm not just making this up. In Matthew 27, 62 through 63, the Jewish religious leaders address Pilate with this Greek word, kurios. It says, on the next day, which followed the day of preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees gathered together to Pilate saying, sir, or kurios, this is translated Lord here in our, in our verse, we remember while he was still alive how that deceiver said after three days, I will rise. So clearly they're not, a, they're not addressing him as Lord God here. They don't believe he's the Lord God. They're just addressing him with respect because they want uh, the bread. And so this is the one who gives the bread. He said that multiple times. So they said, all right, sir, would you give us this bread always? Now, they also say, give us this bread always. You notice that word. And, and again, you, you, you think, well, maybe they're getting it right? Eternal bread that endures forever. Verse 27, all, give us this bread always. You think they're getting it? I don't think they are because they've already, he's already told them how to get this bread, right? He already told them that back in verse 28, verse 29, actually. What shall we do that we may work the works of God or labor for the food which endures to eternal life? Jesus answered and said to them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he sent. Now they don't they don't ask any more questions at that point. What do you mean by that? They just, they just go on, well, Moses fed us for 40 years. And you, does that mean you're going to feed us for longer? Let's show us the sign, you know, is kind of how they respond. So he's the bread they're asking for. They just don't realize it yet. Who, do, who by the way, does that remind you of in the book of John? Does it remind you uh, of anybody else, any other story that we've looked at so far? Should, should remind you of the woman at the well. Right? What did she want? Jesus said, I got living water. You'll never have to draw again. She's like, give me that water. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't want to be lugging this mug up here, you know, every day and lugging it back full of water. I just want this water that I never have to refill my jug. Right. And so she had the same kind of concept. The guys in the audience here had the same kind of concept. Um, they wanted bread that they wouldn't have to labor for anymore. And who could blame them? You know, wouldn't it be nice if you had free, free, uh, Uber Eats, you know, and you just order whatever you want and just bring it to your house. I mean, we would all love that. That's nice. I hate that we had to pay for food, you know, kind of, especially when it's never mind jacked up like it is right now. But so we get it. We get it from a human level. They're missing the point. They're, they're, they're caught up on the externals. Just like the woman at the well, Jesus is just going to say, you know what? Verse 35, they're not getting it. I'm just going to lay it all out there. I'm just going to say it direct. Let's see if it clicks, right? I think he, again, he's trying to bring them along. And um, what they didn't realize at this point, hopefully some in the crowd eventually did. Hopefully we'll see some of these people in heaven one day. It's not a thing that they needed. It's not a what that they needed. It's a who that they needed. They needed the person. The bread of life is a person. That's who they needed for eternal life. They weren't getting that. Thankfully, Jesus is a great teacher. He's whetted their appetite. To, they're kind of still hanging around, and now he goes after them a little bit directly. He says, guys, verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. And you'll notice all of these qualifiers that he gives to this bread leading up to this point in time. It was uh, verse 27, food that endures to eternal life. Verse 32, true bread from heaven. Verse 33, the bread of God. Now he's just like, you know what? 
I'm the bread of life, okay? I've been talking about this bread. I've been using it as a metaphor. I'm using it as a teacher. Let me just tell you what's going on. I am the bread of life. And when he says that, he, he gives the first of seven I am claims that we're going to see in the book of John. He says, I am. He uses this form in the Greek. It's two words, ego, a me. He said it when he walked on water, right? He showed up. He said, it is I, I am, I am, which is significant because he's going to use it seven times in the book of John, but it's significant because literally translated, it's the phrase, I am, I am. Now for a Jewish mind to hear that, it would immediately take their mind back to Moses and the burning bush. And so he's definitely saying something significant here. By the way, we're going to add Jesus's I am claims to the chart. There's a QR code on the back table, if you haven't found that yet, that has all of these charts. We're just going to keep updating that on our website. So if you want that, you can check that out on the back table. That, that chart is now uploaded for you to look at. So it's there. But this is the first use of this direct claim uh, that he is the I am. And again, it connects him back to Moses, right? They're trying to connect him to Moses. So he says, all right, let me connect you back to Moses. Let me, let me show you how I fit in the Moses story. I'm not the JV player to Moses' superstar status. In fact, I was the God that sent Moses. This is what he's saying. You remember, it came out of the burning bush. I am who I am. Moses said, who should I tell the Israelites sent? What's your name? And, and you know, it's so funny. He doesn't say, you know, he doesn't say Yahweh. He could have just said Yahweh. But he uses this phrase, I am who I am. And then what you're going to see in the Old Testament is he's going to, all throughout the Old Testament, God refers to himself using this terminology. I am. I am he. I am the one. I am. And, and you're going to see that this is, this should have been a trigger phrase, I think, for Jesus's audience. Okay. Again, he's trying to convince them of his identity. And what he's basically telling them is, guys, I was the one in the burning bush speaking to Moses. That was me. <laughs> I'm not on the JV team. I'm not on the varsity team. I'm here to, to take over. <laughs> it's kind of the idea, right? It's kind of like the angel of the Lord and Joshua. Joshua's like, he, he turns around, right? He's getting ready to take Jericho. He turns around, he sees this guy, what he thinks is a guy with a sword drawn. And Joshua says, are you for us or against us? And it was the angel of the Lord. And I love the response. He says, I'm not for you or against you. I'm here to take over. <laughs> and that's exactly who Jesus is here. I'm, I'm the source of eternal life. I am the bread of life is what he's saying. In other words, Jesus is and always has been the bread of life, the very one who sustains all life, the very one who gives eternal life uh, as well. And, and I think I mentioned before the Jews in Jesus's day considered the true bread from heaven to be the law. Notice Jesus doesn't say I, he had the bread of life, but he was the bread of life, right? They were asking for something from Jesus. Jesus was offering himself. And so we see this coming together here in this statement. So in this statement, he's not only claiming that he's the bread of life, but he's also claiming that he's greater than Moses. He's bigger than Moses because he's the Messiah, because he's God. You could say it this way. Jesus Christ was the one that Moses had to take his sandals off for. That's who he, that's who he took his sandals off for, was the Lord Jesus Christ in that burning bush. Now, again, as I mentioned, astute Jewish ears would have heard this ego a me, this I am, and said, wait a minute. What, what did he just say? This this is, he's making an incredible claim here. In fact, he, he's going to make that claim again at the end of John chapter eight. And that audience actually gets it. This is the Jewish religious leaders. In fact, look at their response in John eight, 58. Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you before Abraham was, I am, ego a me, same description. Then they took up stones to throw at him. Okay. So they knew exactly what he was claiming. He was claiming deity. He was claiming origin from heaven. He was claiming to be the Messiah. And they wanted to stone him as a result. And so an astute Jewish listener here in this crowd, this is up in Capernaum now. These are just average lay people, if you will, in this crowd. They don't, they don't quite pick it up. We're going to see that they don't quite get what he's saying. The question is, if they were to believe what he was saying, how should they respond? Jesus is going to tell them that here in verse 35. He's going to say this. I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. And he who believes in me shall never thirst. And he uses this word comes. It's, it's the Greek word erkomai, okay? And it means to come or to go. 
in any direction. It was used of movement from one point to another. Now, we're going to get really technical here in a few minutes. So I, I want to kind of warn you and prep you. So if you're already losing steam, hang in there. We, I think we still got some coffee in the back. You need to take a shot, whatever. We're going to get technical in a minute, but I think it's helpful because I want to, I want to carefully observe this text. There's a, there's a lot of confusion that comes out of this passage that we're in today. So I'm just pointing it out as we go to kind of prep you for that. I, I want to describe the particular nuance in this word erkumai. You think to yourself, why, why? Because it just means to come or go in any direction. What's the big deal? Uh, we'll see what the big deal here is in a second. The nuance in this word is it describes the process of movement toward an object. It's coming over to somebody. It's kind of the idea that Erkomai describes, all right? Also, it's an articulated participle. Now, why do I say that? It's because when you have an articulated participle degree, it functions like an adjective, it dis- it's more descriptive of the person than it is the action. So it's the coming one, okay, or the one who comes. The reason I say this is because a lot of people will see that and they'll say, well, that's a present tense participle. It reflects continual action. And it doesn't. It's an articulated participle. You can't, you have to look at the context to see if it reflects continual action or a one-time action. You have to look at the context. And that's what we're going to try to do as we go forward. And so why would someone, by the way, come to Jesus or come over to Jesus, the bread of life? Well, the the answer implied contextually is that they would eat, right? They would partake of the bread of life. This is what he's offering to them. And so we see that coming to Jesus is synonymous with eating the bread of life, which I believe is synonymous with believing in him. In fact, I think that very next phrase in the same verse just restates what he's saying. It's just a different way of saying what he just said. So we see this pattern in the book of John. We just want to observe this pattern. Eating the bread of life is illustrative of believing. Just like drinking living water in John 4 was illustrative of believing. Just like looking at the serpent in John 3 was illustrative of believing. Those are all one-time events reflected by these uh, articulated participles, these adjectival participles. Now, what's really important, let's, and, and let's enjoy the pa- Even though we're getting technical, let's enjoy the passage still, all right? Because there's some great things here, especially as it relates to eternal security. If you've ever been a person that says, well, I think I'm saved, but I don't know if I'm going to be saved at the end. I, there's probably something I still need to do. I, I, don't, I don't really know. You know, we, we, a lot of times when we talk to people, survey evangelists, that's kind of their attitude. Well, I'm 100% today, but I don't know if I could be 100% five years from now. I just don't know what I'm going to do between now and then. There's just like this uncertainty. Well, we want to erase that from your thinking. Not based on how good you are. It's never about you. It's always about the value of what Jesus Christ accomplished. And so we're going to see that here in this passage. Because he's going to say, those who, he who comes to me shall never hunger, Right? And, and that seems pretty clear in and of itself, just stated that way. But it gets even more clear when you start looking at the language that Jesus uses. In fact, he uses a double negation here. It's the Greek phrase, ume. It's the strongest way in the Greek language to indicate something will never happen. In fact, the thrust of the statement is once somebody comes to Jesus and eats the bread of life, they will never, no, not ever hunger again. You know, in English, when we put two negations together, we make it a positive. It's, that's, they always tell you, don't, don't ever talk. Don't be talking to no, you know, double negations. Everyone just starts getting confused. Wait a minute. Does he want me to go over there? Or does he not want me to go over there? Because double negation is kind of confused. In the Greek language, this was just an emphatic way to say it would never happen. The idea is that once you eat of this bread, once you come to the bread of life, you'll never, no, not ever, hunger again. And so this is the context, by the way, that helps us with the timestamp. This is why we know it's not continual belief. How do we know that? Well, that's how everyone eats. I keep, I come back for a bite. Okay, I'm not hungry now, but then I have to come back for a bite. And then I'm not hungry again. And then I have to come back for a bite and I'm not hungry. That defeats the whole purpose of what Jesus is saying. He's saying one bite, one bite, never hunger again. Never, no, not ever. It's not this continual thing because then it would be based on you. And he couldn't make the promise that you would never hunger because if you stopped coming to eat, you would hunger. Just like we do on a daily basis, right? I haven't eaten since about, Six o'clock last night, and I'm already, you know, I'm kind of thinking about lunch already, right? We, we get hungry after a time. 
And we have to keep eating. Jesus, what, the thrust of what Jesus is saying is something completely different. Not requiring continual eating. That's, that defeats the whole purpose of what he's saying. In fact, if it was based on your continual eating, he, he could never say you'll never hunger again. You have to put a condition on there. You'll never hunger again unless you stop eating. What's the promise in that? It makes no sense. He couldn't say it or he wouldn't say it so emphatically. See, one bite, one meal, and a person will never need bread again. That's his point. And this, again, reflects, reflects the consistency we've seen in the book of John. John 3, one look. John 4, one drink. John 6, one bite of bread. It's when you transfer your trust to whatever you were trusting in before and you put it exclusively in Jesus Christ. At that moment, you'll never hunger again is the promise. The second promise, also found in verse 35, more explicitly stated, he who believes in me shall never thirst. Again, he who believes in me, it's our phrase that's used, I think, 93 times in the book of John, pastuo, which means to believe. Ice means into, literally translated. Pastuo, ice, it's believing in Jesus. It's also an articulated participle, meaning the believing one or the believer in Jesus. I say that again because some people will say, oh, it's a present tense participle. It means you got to continually believe until the end of days. And if you don't, then you're not saved. That's not what it's saying at all. That's a misuse of the Greek language. You have to go to the context to determine the timestamp. Is it continual or is it a one-time event? And we would make an argument from the context. He's talking about a one-time event. Again, if he's not, then this is exactly what we do on a daily basis. We have to keep drinking in order not to thirst. So what's different about why is this such an emphatic promise if he's not saying something totally different is kind of the point. Again, shall never first. Jesus uses the same Greek double negation here, but then he also adds another word for emphatic emphasis. It's incredible. It's like Jesus, uh, I mean, if there was uh, exclamation points in Greek, they'd be all over this passage, all over this passage. He's just trying to convince them. Once you put your faith in me, it's done. You have eternal life. Your sins are forgiven. You'll never hunger again. You'll never thirst again. So he says, not, uh, never, no, not ever thirst. He also adds another word for an emphatic emphasis. It's this Greek word, popote. It means yet ever or at any time. It's an indefinite point of time or occasion. So putting it all together, it literally reads, he who believes in me shall never, no, not ever, or at any time in the future thirst. How about that for confidence? in your salvation. And, and by the way, where are you at in the equation there? Where's it dependent on you in that equation there? You are literally looking away from yourself to trust in somebody else and what he did. And when you do that, you get the benefit of what he accomplished. See, it's all about Jesus Christ. It's all about him guaranteeing this, that you'll never thirst again. In fact, this Greek word, Popote, it's used six, only six times in the New Testament. It's the only verse I can find where it's used in conjunction with this double negation. Jesus is making an emphatic point here that he wants his crowd to hear. He is talking very directly to them so that they'll hear it. And you know what? This is awesome news. Awesome news. But you know what Jesus is about to point out for us in verse 36? They don't believe him. They just rejected what he said. In fact, let's look at verse 36. It says this, but I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. Seen means they've seen. They've actually perceived who he is, recognized him as unique. In fact, they've been chasing him around the Sea of Galilee for the last two days. They've been looking for him. They, they said, I think this is the prophet that Moses talked about. Let's kidnap him, make him king. Let's chase him across the lake here. Let's run around here. Let's take these boats, go find him, right? They're seeking him. They'd seen something unique, but at some level, they weren't getting it still. They, they simply rejected him. They wouldn't trust what he was saying. They wanted more proof. How much more proof? Just one more, just one more, just one more, just one more. In other words, not a, nothing you could do, Jesus, could ever prove it to us. We just don't want to trust you. They're just rejecting him, and they're rejecting the full implications of what he was saying. How tragic. Yeah, this is just, it's like you go in these passages, it's like the heights of exhilaration, and then it's just like the depths of tragedy. 
to watch how people respond to what Jesus is offering here. It's just incredible. I'm going to pick on Calvinism a little bit here, and I hope that doesn't offend anybody. But if it does, come talk to me. Don't just race off and be like, oh, forget him. You know, I, you know I, we would say very clearly at this church, uh, we're not Calvinist, we're not Arminian. Many people think you have to be one of the two, uh, but we don't hold to any of those theological positions. We see, we see issues with both of those. We try to take, if, if we could say it, although it sounds arrogant, I don't mean to, it to sound arrogant, but we try to take a more, more balanced view of this issue, you know, as best we can. And I don't, I don't think we're perfect. So how's that for all my disclaimers? All right, let's, let me just tell you what I want to say uh, now that I've disclaimed myself to death. But I just point this out, okay? Because in verse 36, verse 37, when we get there, this is a verse that's often used as a proof text for the Calvinistic doctrine of unconditional election. We'll go right here to verse 37. But I want to point out before we get there that the verb believe here is used in the active voice. Very significant. And and what it means is that they of their own free volition rejected Jesus Christ. Not that they couldn't believe, but that they chose not to believe. And I just point that out as we get into verse 37. One other point. This means that the group Jesus is speaking to made a choice of their own volition not to believe in him It wasn't because they didn't have the ability to believe. If they didn't have the ability to believe, it should be in the passive voice in verse 36, and it's not, okay? So pointing that out as we're going to verse 37, just kind of projecting ahead. And I only point this out not to take on Calvinism. I could could care less. I got other things on my plate than to just fight Calvinism on my life, right? But it does cause a lot of confusion, That's why I'm pointing it out. And I think there's a lot of confusion because a lack of careful observation here that we're going to try to do in the next two verses. Verse 36, we just noticed something in verse 37. And what we're going to see is that the doctrine of Calvinism is going to contradict some of these simple observations in the text. Okay, and that's why I'm pointing that out. All right, verse 37, let's read it. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Notice the father is giving something, same word used 12 times in this section, this chapter. It means to give of one's own accord and goodwill. Now, there's some uniqueness associated with this particular instance of giving. In fact, going into this verse, before we've gotten to this verse, we've seen God giving certain things to people. He's giving things to people. Verse 27, he's giving, he said, food which endures to everlasting life. Verse 31, he's giving bread from heaven in the case of Moses and the Israelites. That was the manna. Verse 32, he gives the true bread from heaven in the case of Jesus Christ. In verse 33, he gives life to the world. So he's giving things to people. Here's what's interesting. If you notice the change in our verse, verse 37, now he's giving people to the son. You see the, the difference? He's not giving things to people. He's giving people to the son. This is an interesting shift. Now, why does he do that? Well, let's just go big picture for a second. The ultimate goal of the father giving people to the son is to guarantee their future outcome of resurrection from the dead. Now, why do I say that? Let's just drop down in context again, building the case here. Verse 39, this is the will of the father who sent me that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. So you see the giving of people to the son is designed to guarantee their future outcome of resurrection. That's ultimate, the ultimate goal of why God is giving people to the son. And then we're going to, so we're going big picture for just a second. We'll come back and pick up the details. All right. So just bear with me, just kind of trying to put this together. So who does the father give? Okay. Who does the father give to the son? And this is really where the rub and the debate is, quite frankly, in this whole issue of Calvinism and, uh, and the debate. But we know, I, we can say for sure we know this is not describing a group of people chosen before the world began. Now you say, well, how can you say that so confidently? Well, the verb tense of the word give is in the present tense. If it's describing people that he chose and gave from eternity past, which is what Calvinism teaches, it would need to either be in the aorist tense or the perfect tense, not in the present tense. Okay. So again, I told you we're going to go technical a little bit. This is why we're going technical. So you can kind of, we can kind of see this and develop this thinking together. 
And so this giving of people in the present seems to be contingent on something else that happens in the present. It seems to be contingent on something else that happens in the present. What is that something else? What is that condition? Well, what has Jesus been discussing? What will he continue to discuss throughout this passage? It's belief in him. So the order is simply this. When somebody believes in Jesus Christ, at that moment, they're given to Jesus Christ and their eternal destiny is now secure. That's the, the overall big picture, I think, of what's being taught here. Let's even tie it into our media context a little bit further because you're going to see the relationship between giving people and belief in the Son. In fact, look at verses 39 and 40. I'm going to pull it up here, but you can look in your own Bible. There's three phrases in verse 39, and there's three phrases in verse 40. And you're going to see how they, they're parallel. They're parallel with each other. Verse 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me. Very first phrase, verse 40. This is the will of him who sent me. Second phrase, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing. Second phrase in verse 40, a little bit different. That everyone who sees the son and believes in him may have everlasting life. But notice the connection between these two phrases, given and belief, right? There's, they're, they're connected here. Why do we say that? Well, look at the third phrase. But should raise it up at the last day. And the third phrase in verse 40, I will raise him up at the last day. And so we see how these two go together. They're exactly the same. We see how the third phrases go together. They're exactly the same. Since these are parallel verses, there's a connection between those second phrases that the giving of people to the son is based on belief in the son in the present. That's the contingency by which the father gives. That's the best way that I can understand taking all of this observation into account. And so the giving of these people by the father to the son seems to be on the basis of their volitional choice to hear the truth about Jesus and to believe in him. That seems to be the condition. And it's going to fit perfectly, I believe, with the rest of the passage when we get down into like verse 44, um, which we'll, we'll tackle, uh, I think next, yeah, next week. And then verse 54, which we'll tackle soon thereafter. The other thing that this understanding does is it just fits with the context coming forward. So let me just point this out. Because uh, when you look at verse 37 in the English, it says, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me will by no means mass, uh, cast out. Now, when you look at the English translation, you think the word come and come are the same thing. They're actually not. Jesus switches words here with the first come. And this is why I told you to hold on to Erkomai, right? Hold on to Erkomai. We're going to come back to that in this nuance because I think this switch is very significant in understanding, all right? This phrase, will come to him, is the Greek word heko. It means to come or to have come to be here. Here's the nuance of this word in, uh, in distinction to Erkomai. The emphasis with this word is not on the act of coming or the process of coming, but on the arrival, okay? On the arrival to the end goal, you might say. By the way, it's the only time this word is used in this passage. Every other use of the word come in this passage is erkomai, describing the process, believing in him, which we would say is synonymous with believing in him. And so the question that we should be asking as Bible students, the question that his audience should have been asking is, why does Jesus switch to hecho here? And not Erkomai, when he's using Erkomai, 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 oh, and he switches to Hecko. Like, ooh, what's going on there? It's designed to get our attention. Again, Erkomai is used 12 times in this passage. It emphasizes more the process of coming, this, this motion of coming over to somebody, and it represents or it's illustrative of faith. Now, a great example, by the way, well, why is this important to recognize? Again, why, why are we making such a big deal about it? Let me just tell you why I think it's a big deal. Erkomai is synonymous for believing in him. Coming to him is synonymous with arriving with Jesus at the end goal. And so the way we would put this all together is this. All that the Father gives me will arrive with me at the end goal. That's what he's saying here. And then who does the Father give? Well, the people that believe in him, the people that come to him, Erkomai. Let's, let's look at another passage, Hebrews Chapter 10, verse 37 uses both of these words. I think it illustrates it well. The Net Bible says this, for just a little longer, longer, and he who is coming, Erkomai, will arrive, Hecho, and will not delay. Many of you know that I just got back from a trip from Liberia. And so the moment I stepped on the plane in Monrovia, I was coming home. I was 
coming home the second I stepped on the plane, Air Kamai. But you know what? I didn't arrive home until over 30 hours later. And arriving home is not getting to Hartsfield International Airport. Arriving home, heck goes when I put my arms around my wife and my kids. That's when I heckoed, <laughs> right? That's when I heckoed. I didn't, Air Kamai was when I got on the plane in Monrovia. I, I, I was coming home, but I arrived home when I was with my family. That's the difference between those two words. And what he's saying here in verse 37 is all that the father gives me are going to arrive with me at home (laughs) is basically what he's saying. So again, it fits the context of the passage greatly. It's a, by the way, heckle is future tense too. It's not talking about right now. He's, they're going to come to me in the present. It's looking forward to a future day when they, when we arrive with Jesus, arrive with him where? In the resurrection for eternal life. That's what He's talking about, it's another strong argument for eternal security. And so the idea communicated is that the people that the father gives to the son because of their faith in the son will arrive to Jesus in the future in heaven via eternal life. And now that we have that straight, Jesus switches back to Erechimai. <laughs> so it's like he uses this little distinction. He goes back to Erechimai to finish the, the passage. And let's look at that quickly. Uh, verse 37, the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. And let's just, we'll kind of move through this quickly here. We've mentioned this with Eric Um, When he says by no means, it's the third time he uses this double negation in the Greek. Ume, never, no, not ever. There's not a possibility that Jesus will cast you out if you believe in him. That's uh, the, the strongest promise of eternal security that we can think of. In fact, it's a, it's a very emphatic way of saying, cast you out. It's, he adds another word at the, the backside of that verb that said, you could, you could read it, cast out without. <laughs> You'll never be cast out without uh, in terms of when you put your faith in Jesus Christ. So again, it's just a strong passage on the eternal security that God provides through the promises of Jesus Christ. And the promises that Jesus Christ makes to each one of us is based on the value of the finished work that he accomplished. That's why we can have so much confidence in our salvation. Again, it's not because you're a good person or you've read more Bible verses this year than you did last year. I mean, who gives a rip about that in terms of eternal security? I mean, it, let's give a rip about reading the Bible. I don't mean it that way. But, it's, but in terms of eternal security, that has nothing to do with it. It always has something to do with what Jesus accomplished. We want to keep the value of what he did, the appreciation for what he did, front and center in our thinking as it relates to eternal security. So let's close there with a word of prayer. Lord, I thank you for your word. Lord, it is our desire to handle it carefully and clearly. And we, we pray that that was done this morning. We pray that uh, in all things that your son is exalted, that he is valued in, in what he accomplished and what he was able to do. And we just, we love the Lord Jesus. We long to see him face to face. We, we pray as John d- d- did in Revelation, come quickly, Lord Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.